When I was first taught how to serve Mass as a uh, young child, I was about in the uh, fifth grade, either before my fifth grade year or immediately after my fifth grade year. I was taught by Father Larry Pierce. Father, Father Pierce was a um, bitter man. And uh, he was not well liked in our parish in many ways. He's a very smart man, very brilliant. Uh, but I give, uh, I give a lot of credit to him for my vocation, actually, very interestingly, because, because of the way that he taught us how to serve Mass. He didn't just teach us how to serve Mass, but part of the whole training of to serve Mass was to actually be in the sacristy, to learn all the uh, utensils and all the vestments that were used for the Mass. And we had to have it memorized before he would actually allow us to serve. And so this study of the symbolism that he taught us uh, was instilled in me from a, from an early age. And the symbolism that, that is present in the Mass is very important to me even today, so much so that when I got to college and then in seminary, uh, learning this symbolism and learning uh, the ways in which the church has incorporated this symbolism into our liturgies uh, for us to have a deeper understanding of who we are as Catholics and a deeper understanding of what we are doing in the Mass uh, became very real becomes very real for us as Catholics. And so when I began to study uh, the symbolism of the altar and, uh, and, and the reality of the altar and, and understanding the, the full concept of the altar, it, it, was, it, it was very eye-opening. In a sense, uh, my eyes were open so I could see as Bartimaeus in the Gospel today. The altar itself represents Jesus. It represents Jesus in, in many ways, but in a particular way, I want to talk about it in three ways. It represents Jesus in his death, represents Jesus in his resurrection, and represents Jesus the high priest. Now, when we say that it represents Jesus in his death, that also incorporates his humanity. And so the way in which we show that it represents his death is the way in which we vest the altar. We don't call it decorating the altar. We actually refer to it as vesting the altar. And for many, for many reasons, which I'll, which I'll get to here in a bit. But when we vest the altar with the, with the altar cloth, the white altar cloth, traditionally there are, there are two altar cloths that are placed on the altar. And those altar cloths are actually to represent the, the two cloths that actually wrapped Jesus when he was laid in the tomb in Jerusalem. And so the, the one cloth is meant to be placed on the altar and it's meant to be folded over so that it becomes two layers. And so you end up getting three layers on the altar of, of linen cloth. And the cloths are meant to be linen because that was what was covered, is what covered Jesus when he was laid in the tomb. And so that one that is, in a sense, wrapped around is what we refer to as the shroud today. The shroud of Turin is, is the way that we refer to it today. Uh, the shroud it, it is in Turin, Italy now. And when you look at, and when you look at the shroud, it has the, uh, has the body of Jesus that is kind of implanted into the cloth itself. It's a, it's a quite a mystery and a beautiful mystery to study it and to, and to learn about the shroud itself. But the second cloth that is meant to cover the altar is then the one that wrapped his head. Because we hear about in the gospels, we hear it said that, uh, the cloth that wrapped his head was folded up and was laying on the slab upon which upon which he was laying when, when he was buried. And so our altar cloths today, uh, we actually have the three layers on our, on our on our altar today. 
We just got new altar cloth, so I can say this now. Um, but, uh, but it has the three layers. We are allowed to take the one that's meant to be folded over and to actually cut it in half so it begins to be three claws in essence. But the one that the two small ones that actually fit on the top of the altar are meant to be the one that is folded over in the shroud. So it represents Jesus in the resurrection in the sense of when the, when the body and blood are consecrated on the altar and they become the body and blood of, of Jesus, that can only happen because he is resurrected. It was not possible for that to happen when he was still walking on the earth, but because he is re- resurrected and he is not bound by space or time, he can be present on every altar throughout the world at every mass and at every time. And so he is represented in his divinity, in his resurrection on the altar. And finally, the high priest. He's represented as the high priest. The altars are, are meant to be decorated and they're meant to be uh, clothed or vested in the color uh, in w- of the mass in which is being celebrated. So during ordinary time, we have it vested in the green, uh, in a sense, the, the altar vestments in order to represent the ordinary time in which we are in. And so in, in, in some churches, they actually trade it out every day according to the liturgical cycle, especially in monasteries where they have, and, and convents where they have the ability to be able to do that. Many times the, the altar uh, vestments are actually in the same colors and in the same styles as what the priest wears for Mass, symbolizing that Christ is the fullness of the priesthood and that the priest that is saying Mass is really only a participation in that priesthood, only by virtue of the ordination which he has received through the hands of the bishop to be able to act in persona Christi in that moment. And so I think it's important to talk about those things about the altar to understand more fully about who the high priest is. And we hear about the high priest in our second reading today from the, the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, when he, speak, when he, he is speaking about the high priest, is really uh, more closely speaking about the high priest of the Old Testament, the high priest in the temple that was in Jerusalem. But the language that is spoken about the high priest of the writer of Hebrews can also be applied to the priesthood today and uh, the, the New Testament priesthood that Jesus instituted. And so there's four uh, characteristics of the high priesthood uh, according to Hebrews 5 that Jesus takes on and that is fulfilled through the priest today. First, the high priest is taken from among men. He is made or appointed by God. They are representatives before God. And the high priest is a mediator in which he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he is taken from among men. In order to represent the people before God, a priest must be one of them. So the, the priests in the Old Testament and the high priests were taken from the, from the Levitical priests or from the line of Aaron. Today, he is one of us. He is someone from the pew, raised up in the family, and in a parish, comes from somewhere, has the ties to a community, has his ties to, to the community. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, he is able to deal patiently with the ignorant and the erring, erring, for he himself is beset by weakness. So the fact that he comes from a community, the fact that he comes from our families, we all know that the priest that stands before us has his faults. I don't, so you don't have to worry about me. Just kidding, I've plenty of faults. 
But we all have our faults. We know them. We understand that they are taken from among one of us. We, we knew them from when they were a child or we knew them as they got older. We've seen their faults. We've seen how they are. We recognize that they are one of us, but they are still called by God in order to offer this sacrifice. I think this is beautifully played out in the ordination rite when, it, when a man is ordained. There's two questions that are posed to this man to be ordained. The questions are, do you resolve to implore with us God's mercy upon the people entrusted to your care by observing the command to pray without ceasing? And so every priest is called to prayer through the liturgy of the hours, uh, which, which is that symbol of that praying without ceasing, but also then to spend time throughout the day in prayer as well, uh, ordering his life after Christ. And the second one is applied to that as well. Do you resolve to be united more closely every day to Christ the high priest? who offered himself for us as a pure sacrifice and with him to consecrate yourselves to God for the salvation of all. And so as the priest is called to unite himself to Christ, he's meant to offer his life as an offering as Christ gave his life as an offering as well. The second characteristic of the priesthood is that no one takes this honor upon himself, but only when called by God as Aaron was. Every priest discerns within his community, within the diocese or religious order, to know if he is called to be a priest. This discernment has objective standards. And so when we, when a young man enters into seminary, there are the, there are the four pillars of formation by which he is, by which he is formed in order to help him to become a better priest, in order to have those objective standards by which, by which they come to know whether or not he is called to be a priest. But along with these objective standards, there is this praying with the seminary, praying with the diocese and praying with the young man himself in order for all of them together to be able to discern whether or not he is called by God into the order of the presbyterate or into the priesthood. It really is a real call from God. It's not something that a young man would come up and dream up of himself. This calling is not a, in, in which he just desires to do, uh, charity work. That's, that's not the purpose of the priesthood. It's part of it, but it's not the fullness of it. And so, your sons are being called. Your sons are call, being called to be priests. Your sons in, in our parish. Your sons in, in other parishes. They're called, they're being called. And so we have the duty as a community to help them discern. To pray for them as we as we begin our 24 hours of adoration here in November uh, every week, in order to help them to discern, to pray for those young men, to allow the call of God to be on their heart, and for them to respond generously with their hearts to that call of God. At an ordination, there is these questions from the bishop that are posed to the vocations director, in which he asks the vocations director, "Do you find him worthy to be ordained?" And so the vocation director is meant to respond in the, in the positive or the negative. I've never seen one in the negative. They've been in seminary for six years, so hopefully they've figured it out by then. But then there's a question from the bishop to the man to be ordained that says, Do you resolve with the help of the Holy Spirit to discharge without fail the office of priesthood in the presbyteral, presbyteral rank as worthy fellow workers with the order of bishops for the Lord's flock? So the priest is not doing the ministry that he does on his own part. He's actually working in accord with the bishop and he only has the authority to be able to work in the parish from the bishop himself. There's nothing that I can do that, that actually is separated from the bishop. 
the only authority I have is because the bishop has allowed me to give, he has given me a piece of his authority to be able to govern in this parish here. And that's the same thing with, with every priest that is, that is ordained. Thirdly, they are a representative, the priest is a representative before God. And so being a representative before God presupposes that there is a divide between God and man that must be overcome. There is a fellowship that has been destroyed that must be restored. And so God himself sets up priestly mediators in order to bridge that, to bridge that gulf. And so we see that Jesus is the one true priest. And so any priest that is ordained is ordained into that priesthood of Jesus Christ. Because on our own, a priest cannot bridge that gulf, but it's the priesthood of Jesus Christ who offers himself fully and completely as a gift to God so that that gulf can be, can be overcome. And a priest is ordained into that to allow others in order to come to know God, in order to come to know Christ. This is a side note, but I think it's extremely important for us to think about. After 1962, those of you who are alive during that time know, know that the Mass was always said with the priest facing the same direction as the people. And so I think, I think the reason that, that that happens is because the priest is a representative before God on behalf of the people. And so in my mind, it really doesn't make sense for me to be facing you during Mass... I think the proper direction of the celebration of Mass is for the priest to be facing the same direction of the people. Like I said, it's a side note to be discussed at another time because that's not the way that we celebrate Mass today. And so uh, if you want to have that conversation, we can have that conversation in like three years or something. But but the, and there's another question that is posed to the young man to be ordained. Do you resolve with the help of this Holy Spirit to discharge without fail the office of priesthood in the presbyteral rank as fellow workers with the, with the order of bishops of the, for the Lord's flock. That question, again, I think is, uh, is important for this aspect as well, because he is representative for God, not on his own part, but in Jesus through the work of the bishop. And fourthly, he carries out the mediation by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the one true lamb that has been offered. He is the priest. He is the one true priest. Fulton Sheen, uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen, Venerable Fulton Sheen once said, uh, he was asked how many priests there were in the world. And he said, there is one. Jesus Christ is the only priest. Every priest only participates in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus as the priest is, is not in the line of Aaron. And he's not in the line of Levi. Remember that it was the, the Levitical priesthood that, that was set aside to do the work in the, in the Holy Temple. And it was the descendants of Aaron who were meant to be the high priest in the temple itself. And so where does this priesthood of Jesus Christ come from? Well, we hear later in, in, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, we actually hear this quote from Psalm 110 verse 4, where it says, You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this strange character that we hear about in the Old Testament in which Abraham meets him in the town of Salem. Salem actually becomes Jerusalem. And so Melchizedek is a priest, but he is a king. He is the king of Salem, but he is also a priest. And so he offers sacrifice on behalf of Abraham in, in Salem or Jerusalem. And he offers a sacrifice of bread and wine. That sounds very familiar. And so this, this priest king that is raised up in Jerusalem 
through Melchizedek is the line in which Jesus becomes the priest. He's not a priest through Leviticus. He's not a priest through Aaron. He's actually in the line of Judah. And in the line of Judah is the descendants of, of the kingship. David is a descendant of Judah. Solomon is a descendant of David. They come from that line of Judah, which are, is the kingship and that priesthood. Jesus connects that priesthood to Melchizedek. And so it's not a, it's not a bloodline that becomes priest, but it's the ones that are chosen by God. This psalm is actually sung or is meant to be sung at the ordination right after the bishop lays hands upon the priest and has pronounced the prayer of ordination. And so this psalm that is sung, you are a priest in the line of Melchizedek, is sung representing and showing us that he's in the line of Jesus, who is in the line of Melchizedek. And the priest is asked, do you resolve to celebrate faithfully and reverently Accord in accord with the church's tradition, the mysteries of Christ, especially the sacrifice of the Eucharist and the sacrament of reconciliation for the glory of God and the sanctification of the Christian people. The sole duty of the priest is to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, to hear confessions for the forgiveness of sins. This is the real duty of the priest to sit in persona Christi, to sit as Christ himself, to forgive sins, to work for the glory of God in forgiveness of sins. So hopefully we can see this connection of how Christ is present, how the altar symbolizes Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in the high priest. And we can see how his priesthood is fulfilled through the priest that stands and offers that sacrifice for us today, for our forgiveness of sins. Because we want to be able to have our eyes We want to have them cleared or we want to have our sight uh, given to us as Christ gave that sight to Bartimaeus so we can see and so we can see Christ and then we can see him in the sacraments and we can see how, and we can see how he is present every day in our life.